If I'm ex most excited about one thing, it's that the next generation of venture capitalists, I think, will not overlook these investment opportunities. And so I, you know, when I think about our partner funds and some of the work that they're doing, that's what gets me most excited. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. With me today is Seth Levine, Managing Director at Foundy Group, a Boulder, Colorado-based venture capital firm, which he co-founded in 2006, and as of 2002, has over $3.5 in assets under management. A longtime venture capitalist, Seth works with venture funds and companies around the globe. Easily distracted and a passionate advocate for entrepreneurship, Seth also spends time as an advisor to venture funds and companies around the world. The intersection of community and business has always been a driving force for Seth. He co-founded Pledge 1%, a global network of companies who have pledged equity, time, and product back to their local communities. He's on the board of Startup Colorado, which promotes entrepreneurship in areas of Colorado outside the front range, and is a board chair of e for all Longmont, which partners with the local community to foster small business. He's also a trustee of McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he helped found their entrepreneurship program, as well as a popular student hackathon, the Macathon. He also works with a number of funds and companies, especially in the Middle East and Africa, to help to promote entrepreneurship and economic development. And if that isn't enough, Seth is the co-author author of a fantastic book called The New Builders, Face-to-Face -face with the True Future of Business, which is a powerful argument for the empowerment and support of our female and BIPOC founders, BIPOC meaning Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Seth, welcome to the show. I've been wanting to get you on here for a while. It's a mouthful. Thank you, Carol. It's good to be it, here. It is a mouthful. There's a lot going on. Lot. And in fact, I can update that. We, uh, Foundry uh, finished raising its its last funds. We now, we're now over $4 billion as of 2023, let's say, so... Well, Mazel tov. That's pretty impressive. I know. It's I a lot of capital. We, it is a lot of capital. And you know what? I don't know if you remember this. When we first met, I think you were right at the $50 million mark. Oh, I'm sure. Right. I mean, I think it was. Okay. It was so how long back. ago yeah. was that? Well, and I mean, of course, the funny <laughs> story about Foundry that no, no one thinks about because it's, you know, it's mm -hmm. been successful is back in 2007, which was, you know, we started in 20, 2006. We started raising mm -hmm. our fund in 2007. Um, and it almost didn't happen because uh, it was really hard to, you know, we were four guys in Boulder, there were no like emerging managers. Like now it's like every venture firm's an emerging manager. And, and, um, right. it was really, really hard to, to actually raise that first fund. And it's somewhere around probably May of 2007. I actually remember coming home, talking to my wife about it and, and saying, Hey, I don't think this is going to happen. Um, one, I think I blew up our life savings cause it was an expensive endeavor more so even that back then to start a firm. Uh, and then two, I, and I'd been in VC at that point for six years, I was kind of unqualified to do anything else. And I was saying like, I, I'm going to have to go find a, a like another job, like a normal job. 
Um, and, you know, fortunately she was like, no, 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 it's all going to work out. And of course she's right. So, you know, fortunately in the next month or two, we had a couple big yeses and then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. uh, the fun came together, which was great. Well, that that's great. And we'll talk more about that. So, um, you, I, I kind of want to start past and, and come to present. So you got your bachelor's in 1994 and then just seven years later became a venture capitalist and, you know, went to your first firm, Mobius Venture Capital. And, you know, as we, as you just said, in late 2006, you co-founded Foundry with your three partners, Brad Feld, Chris Moody, and Ryan McIntyre. Tell me a little bit about your journey from getting out of school through your first job in venture capital, how that happened for you. And again, and, and then, you know, coming to Foundry and how you met these other three, other three. Yeah, men. absolutely. And it was, it was Brad, uh, Ryan and Jason Mendelson, actually, Chris Moody, who's a current partner, but he joined, uh, joined a little later. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I mean, I went to school in Minnesota and I, I really, I had no intention, frankly, of being in business. I was going to be a, uh, psychology, I was a psychology major, psychology and e economics as it turned out, but I, I had been planning on going into academia. I thought I was going to be a professor. Um, and I had an experience at school that, that kind of changed my mind on that. And so I was sort of, you know, looking around for what I should do. Um, and uh, we, McAllister, which is a very small school, um, sent a couple kids a year to uh, investment banking. And there was a lot of pressure to go into banking if you could potentially get a job there. And as it turned out, I was the top graduate in econ in my year. And so I was sort of told like, look, we got to keep the pipeline going. We really want you to look at this pretty seriously. And so I, I didn't know what else I was going to do. I was sort of disillusioned with academia at the, at the time. And I knew I didn't want to follow what I thought was the path I was on, which was to go be a professor. And I was like, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm open to that. And so I ended up, uh, I only ended up having two interviews. I, I actually had to, um, I, I did like a, I, I don't know how, I guess I sent my resume into Morgan, Morgan Stanley, um, through some people that I knew and was, you know, I got a, a note back basically saying, Hey, if you're ever in New York, we'd be happy to interview. So not like we're going to fly there on your own dime kind of, you know, or excuse me, we're going to fly you there. If you want to fly on your own dime, you can do it. And so I went, I remember going, I finished finals. I went home for winter break, you know, Christmas holiday break. And, um, my parents lived in Boston at the time, which is where I grew up. I, the next day I flew to New York I remember it was pouring rain and it, the flight was late and whatever. And they had promised me three interviews. Well, what I didn't realize was the second interview was the interview to see if you had a bunch more interviews that day. So I got out of the third interview and they said, oh, well, there's some other people that would like to meet you. And so I, I ended up having seven interviews that day. It was an exhausting day. I flew back. I flew back to Boston that night, right? I mean, I was not in a position to stay in New York and, you know, whatever. And um, I mean, I remember thinking like it went, reasonably well. And, you know, I didn't think about it too much after that. I had, we had the holiday break and I flew back in early January to, uh, St. Paul. And, uh, there was a letter from Morgan Stanley there offering me a job, uh, as an analyst. So, mm -hmm. uh, that was, I ended up having one other offer for the other, other investment bank that I applied to. And I, I decided I wanted the other to offer was in San Francisco, interestingly enough, given my current vocation. And I decided I really wanted to go to New York and, and, um, I mean, it was both a great and a terrible experience working for Morgan Stanley. Like I learned so much. I worked with incredible people. I expanded my network exponentially, right? I mean, my, my business network through, through McAllister, which really turns out now it turns out more people in business, but back then it turned out a lot of people that were academics and, you know, most, you know, probably 30% of my class went on to get a master's or a PhD. And, um, 
And so it was, it was an incredible experience that way. It was a really sort of tough job and a lot about being an analyst at an investment bank is just sort of like persevering, right? I mean, these are hundred hour weeks very regularly. And, and it was, you know, it was, it was challenging. And this was like, I had a computer. It wasn't like, like the olden, olden days, but you know, I, you couldn't look up like 10 Ks and 10 Qs online and things like that. And uh, a lot of the functions that, that I was doing at the time, I'm sure there's other things that have replaced it that are equally as menial, but, but now are, are kind of done at, by more back office staff. Um, so there was a lot of like pouring through financials, but I learned a ton and I was fortunate to get you know, taken under the wing by a couple of associates that really kind of taught me finance. I didn't know anything about finance. I was a, my econ major was a the, very theoretical uh, econ major, a lot of econometric math, things like that. And so from that perspective, it was a, it was a great, great opportunity. And, you know, they actually offered me a job to skip business school and, um, and stay at Morgan. And which was, a, I mean, they only made a couple, I think I was one of five, five people in my class of 135 that got offered that. And I was about to do it. And then the guy in the group next to one of the guys in the group next to me, one of the other analysts, so 23 years old, had a heart attack, uh, ended up in the hospital. And I just, I don't want to say it was an epiphany. Like I knew that I wasn't in love with venture, but I liked the idea of they were going to move me to Hong Kong and it was going to be an interesting Mm -hmm. experience. And I just thought, what am I doing? Like, this isn't the life that I wanted to live. Um, and so I decided I wanted to move to Colorado. I, my dad grew up in Colorado. I'd spent all my summers here. And uh, I called up a CEO. I'd happened to work for a company when I was at Morgan that was in Colorado. I called up the CEO and said, Shelby, I'd, I'd, I'd like to move to Colorado. Is there any job I can do for you? And he said, absolutely. Someone's going to call you in five minutes. Five minutes later, this dude called me and said, hey, Shelby said, I'm going to hire you. Like, Tell me a little bit more about you. And, and that guy ended up being a huge uh, influence in my business life. He consistently gave me uh, more and more responsibility. Event- we, we eventually both moved on from the, the first company that I worked for that moved me out here. I ended up splitting the CFO role with the chief accounting officer for this company kind of in the dot-com dot era. I took, did a bunch of M&A, a uh, bunch of interesting stories there about working with Enron and some other stuff that, that was sort of back in the day. But um, but we ended up taking that company public and I, I really led that process because I was kind of the corporate finance half of the CFO role. And um, it was just a very heady experience. Um, but eventually, and eventually I ended up running a pretty large part of that that public business. Um, they wanted to, they, eventually they decided to focus on just one sliver of their business. And so the rest of the business reported to me for a year. Uh, it was a couple hundred, 250 people, $55 million P and L. Um, you know, I was in my, I don't know, mid to late twenties at this point. So really like way over my skis. Um, but I did a bunch of interesting things there, eventually sold those businesses off and, and they had offered me a, a spot to stay, but I didn't want to do that. And so I, I, I had a bunch of friends that were in, in private equity and venture because, you know, Morgan Stanley and I'd sort of missed the boat. Like the party was over. Like I truly, I showed up in venture when like, it wasn't even the, like the, what is the cliche? Like the kegs were tapped. Like the police had already come and gone. There was actually no party left. Right. I, I was like, <laughs> I showed up to an empty ballroom and was like, right. Hey, where'd everyone go? Um, but joined venture in 2000, uh, late 2001, um, uh-huh. just in time to actually hit September 11th, right? I mean, I truly, I think my first day was like September 5th. And so, you know, less than a week later, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the planes crashed into the World Trade Center and everything just kind of kind of changed. But that, that was my intro to venture. I was fortunate enough to be working for Brad Feld, who's, you know, an, an unbelievable person. Yep. Um, and was, I mean, I can't imagine a better mentor in venture. And I 
you know, I learned venture by, by, I was his associate. Um, and I, I shadowed him essentially and went to all of his board meetings and, you know, did all sorts of things with him. And, and that was really how I learned, learned the craft of venture capital, which was, I mean, incredibly fortunate. And, and I, I feel very lucky that I was able to do that. And, and frankly, I was just lucky at that moment in my life. I mean, it was a pretty big step back in terms of not just responsibility, but salary and, and sort of the trajectory, you know, I had a bunch of offers to go run business lines or, or go run corporate development for people. And I, I decided to, to go into venture instead. So, so you make a, I, I want to dig into this a little bit because, because this is not uncommon. People have to take a step back sometimes in responsibility, but more often financially to get ahead. Why did you choose to do that? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I, Carol, I totally agree. Right. I mean, I think that, that, um, and I, I've always thought of, of like, your twenties as like collecting experiences and, and well into your thirties even, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think if you just pursue it and if you just pursue financial gain, I think you can often end up in very unsatisfying lives. Right. And, and in my world, like if I had chosen to pursue financial gain, I probably should have stayed at Morgan Stanley, right? That was a very yeah. easy and quick path, especially mm-hmm. given that they said you can skip business school, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, financial gains. But, but I think a life that wouldn't, wouldn't have been the life that I wanted for myself. I'm actually not putting a value judgment on on that, mm-hmm. um, right. but just it wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have to tell you, it was hard. I I was able to rationalize it initially because I was a single guy and and you know I didn't have a lot right. of expenses, and so it seemed to make Good. sense. I'm, I'm glad but you mentioned that. Yeah. In the middle of all of this, I got married. My wife and I had our first first kid, and it was, you know, I can remember very well in 2004 and 2005. Um, how tight things felt, right? Our daughter was born in January of 2004. First daughter was born in January 2004. And I remember feeling really tight about it and, and having some second thoughts about like, did, did this make sense? Was this a smart thing to do, right? And then fast forward to 2006, I mentioned the story earlier about, you know, sort of May 2007, we had been fundraising for a few months and it looked like it wasn't going to happen. My wife and I had moved from a house in Denver to a less expensive house up, not in Boulder, because that we couldn't afford that, but in <laughs> yeah, Longmont, right. right? And so, you know, we, we had already- Anybody around here knows that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and my wife, who have, mm-hmm. had her own career, was, was uh, sort of working part-time at that point. Um, because we, you know, we had our daughter at home and she right. was, she was doing that as well. And, um, and I remember feeling a lot of stress about it. Right. I mean, there was not, uh, it was not easy. It was not an easy time. Um, and so, and then it obviously exacerbated by feeling like, oh my gosh, I probably, you know, we didn't have a lot of life savings, but I, I put it all in on the table to start foundry and, and thinking like, oh no, this isn't going to happen. And then even when foundry started, right. I mean, that first fund was, it was a decent sized fund. $225 million, but, but we were not sort of living large, right? It wasn't until a couple of years later, we raised our second fund. We started having a few exits that, that things started to feel more comfortable and like, like that, uh, that bet paid off, if you will, Carol. Yeah. And, and that's really fantastic. So, so you, you already said how you met Brad, but how'd you meet your other two partners? Yeah. So we all worked together at, uh, Mobius and, and really this, the uh, founding, okay. we've, my version of the founding story of Foundry is, um, Mobius was out raising another fund and I had been promoted to like super junior partner, like barely more than an associate uh, at that point. And so I wasn't involved with the fundraise at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, and so at one point it was 2005, at one point in 2005, I went to Brad and said, Hey, 
I'm not quitting now, but I'm not going to stay. Like I'm not, I'm not interested in being a junior partner, as I mentioned to you just just now, and, and, and insightfully, you mm-hmm. were <laughs> kind of figured out some of the motivations here. Like I was kind of worried about money, um, and I, it was, you know, I had, by by that time we'd had our first first kid, and right. I just was like, I can't keep doing this, right? I don't want to be a super junior partner at Mobius, and, and so he and I had a conversation about it, and he said, Look, actually, I don't think we're going to be able to raise this fund. I've been thinking about maybe doing something on my own, would you be interested in, in joining me? And, and I said, yeah, absolutely. If, if that's what you're thinking about doing, I would love to have that conversation with you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he said, I'd like, you know, I, I feel very comfortable with Jason and Ryan. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to consider having them join us as well, um, but I'd want them to move out. And so we ended up having a conversation with them about that. They moved out in kind of the middle of 2006, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is when we really started working in earnest on Foundry, and the back then you had to like write up offering memorandum and things like that to to raise venture venture funds. Um, so we did all that in the second half of 2006, and and then kicked off the fund in 2007. But it's that's kind of how it came together, right? I mean, it was it was. Uh, it, I'm glad I had that conversation. And just, I, by the way, I think it speaks to both the kind of person Brad is, but also just this great relationship that we had, where I felt like I could mm-hmm. say to him like, "Hey, this this Mobius thing is not going to work for me." Um, and I'm, I'm glad that I did obviously, because that really precipitated, um, the a real discussion around, mm-hmm. well, let's do something else. What did you find to be your biggest challenges in raising your fund, your first fund? You know, when you said to your wife, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, no one really believed in the story. I mean, first of all, we had a whole group of people, we were raising an, a national venture firm, but based in Boulder. We had a whole group of people that just couldn't get that in their heads. And so they would constantly. Not back then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, not at all. And they, yeah. they, you know, if you were, if you were not in Silicon Valley or maybe Boston, you were a regional fund. So people thought we were a regional fund, even though we'd say, no, 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 we're not a regional fund. Um, so that was a challenge. Back then, the, the adage was you needed to be in one of the top 10 venture firms or it wasn't worth being in the asset class. There were no emerging managers. It wasn't a thing back then, right? Now there's a million emerging managers and they've been, they proved to be quite successful, but, but none of them had broken out, right? And you think about the people that, that preceded us, Union Square Ventures, Spark Capital, First Round Capital, that they had raised their initial funds, but they had not been successful yet. It wasn't clear that that was, that was working. And so, I mean, fortunately for us, we had a couple of early yeses. AMG here in Colorado was our very first yes, Chris Jacoby. Um, but, but eventually we had a very influent, uh, influential yes, which was uh, Lyndall Ekman from uh, Utimco. He's now our partner, uh, which gives you a sense of our relationship. But, uh, but back then he was at Utimco and, and he had a thesis around emerging managers that proved to be very, very right. And once he came in, Morgan Stanley's asset management group came in right at, right away. Uh, Roe came in. There was a bunch of people that all of a sudden, like the dominoes yeah, just right. sort of fell once he said yes. And yeah. uh, which by the way, I think is an experience many entrepreneurs have, right? It's no, 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 no. And then finally someone says That's yes. That's right. And, and then, then all everyone's of a sudden the like, oh yeah, that, open. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I want to do. So, um, so yeah, fortunately it happened. What stage do you typically invest? So it's changed a little bit over time. When mm-hmm. we started Foundry, we were seed and series A investors. Okay. Um, and we were that for, we, we sort of were on a cadence of raising a fund every three years. So it's mm-hmm. 2007, 2010, 13, yep. 16. We layered in a, uh, essentially an opportunity fund in the middle of that uh, to invest in growth companies or growth stages of existing portfolio mm-hmm. companies. Um, but in 2016, Lindell joined us 
And, uh, and we decided to kind of change Foundry a little bit. And we started investing not just in companies, but also in other venture funds. We now have a portfolio of, I think we're up to 47 uh, fund managers, typically $100 million or less in, in, in fund size. Uh, okay. Pretty diverse set of managers, actually. It's, it's mostly people on their first, second, or third funds. There's a couple of exceptions in there for some people that we've known for a really long time. Um, but, um, and so what's happened is now we tend to let those funds do the seed and maybe even series A rounds. And of course, what seed means today is different than what it meant back then. So, you know, these, these things are shifting a little bit, but we let them do that. And then we tend to come in at maybe the series A or even the series B. And in fact, we, and then in, in fact, we've been doing some more later stage investing as well, late for us, which would be sort of, you know, call it a, uh, 150 to 500 million dollar valuation. I, I know it's a big range, but but so we're willing to do some later stage stuff. Seth, what's the distinction is that you just made about seed? Then is not what seed is now. Well, my very first seed de- deal, Carol, and you. I mean, you'll appreciate this because you you were around back then, and we were friends back then, actually. But but uh, the very first seed deal I did was a company called AdMeld. Uh, which essentially was the company that that invented real time bidding uh, as an ad ex- you know, sort of an ad exchange uh, concept, mm-hmm. and uh, I we split the round with Spark Capital. The mm-hmm. seed round was a million dollars. We each okay. did a half a million dollars, and the post money was three million. Mm-hmm. To give you a sense for what it what it was like, and by the way, okay. that company four years later was bought by Google for four hundred million, right? So that was a very <laughs> successful was a round. But that's what, <laughs> that's what seed investing was back then, right? right. I mean, it was you know amazing. It was, and when the when the yeah. economics shifted is when we started thinking like, uh, you know, maybe maybe we're not maybe we should let the rest of the market do that, and we can come in with a little bit more information. And then obviously, we believe that we have kind of. Uh, the inside track, given that we are very close with the 47 partner funds that we've invested in. So we get a lot of information uh, from them. There's nearly 3,000 businesses, Carol, that are in our look-through portfolio. It's, and that doesn't even count Techstars, right? Where Brad was a co-founder and right. where we were both early on personal investors and then later fund investors, right? right? right. That alone has probably 5,000 companies in the network. So it's a really, really big look-through portfolio, which gives us a lot of opportunity to get information about companies and really mm-hmm. kind of decide where we want to place our bets. What would you say, because there's just, you know, to people thinking there are so many venture firms out there, what's the competitive nature of the business? And do you consider yeah. it competitive? Like, what an interesting question. And, and it's, you know, when I think about, not when I joined, but that sort of first period of time when I was in venture, and there was a time post the, the bubble, the original bubble uh, collapse in sort of 2002, let's say, maybe even mm-hmm. late 2001, where people were, were saying, hey, there's too many venture firms and, and the, the industry is going to go through a massive consolidation. Right. Um, and that happened, but it happened incredibly slowly, right? Venture funds die very, very slowly. They're born slowly and they die slowly. Um, and, um, but, but it ultimately happened. And by sort of 2007, 2008, there were far fewer mm-hmm. funds than there were back in, in 2001. Um, mm-hmm. And then, then since the kind of the end of the Great Recession, so-called mm-hmm. 2011 or so, but mm-hmm. particularly 2012 to mm-hmm. 2021, there was, a, a, again, another huge expansion of, of venture firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, generally, I think that's been positive, right? I mean, I think in some respects, it reflects, you know, the, the post-bubble or, or the bubble, if you will, the original internet bubble reflected a lot of, you know, 
Harvard and Stanford MBAs starting funds. And I think if you look at what happened in, in 2012 to 2021, it was a much more diverse in terms of, of uh, sort of their, their backgrounds, diverse in terms of experiences, group of people that were starting venture firms. So I think that was positive. Now that said, it probably is a bit more competitive out there. Um, and it's, I also would expect that, you know, in any meaningful downturn, there will certainly be some uh, uh, contraction so some, in the yeah, venture some, space. Some, but right, but sure. the truth is that, you know, venture has grown in part because the need for venture in our ecosystems has grown quite a bit. Yes. So, you know, I don't think that we can take a benchmark from 15 or 20 years ago and say, that's the right total dollars per mm-hmm. year that should be invested in venture. That's the right number of firms. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of really interesting firms doing really interesting work especially investing in underlooked communities, which I think have been largely ignored by venture. And, and I think this next generation, if I'm ex- most excited about one thing, it's that the next generation of venture capitalists, I think, will not overlook these, these investment opportunities. And so I, you know, when I think about our partner funds and some of the work that they're doing, that's what gets me most excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a real need for that in venture because I think, at, you know, you referenced the book that I wrote, but there's a real need to get more capital in the hands of women and people of color and immigrants mm-hmm. um, because, uh, because they're starting more and more businesses. So now many of those businesses, many of all businesses shouldn't take money from VC, but more and more businesses I think are ripe for venture investment because they have the right mm-hmm. return profile. Mm-hmm. So I, that I, I think all speaks really well to, uh, to a thriving venture ecosystem. And, and look, like any thriving ecosystem, think of a forest, right? I mean, it, you know, it, if it gets too overgrown, that's not good, right? So there right. needs to be sort of these cycles of, mm-hmm. of growth followed by some amount of contraction. And I think some people who started funds uh, in the last handful of years will find that either they don't like being in venture or they're not good at being yeah. in venture or they got unlucky or whatever, um, mm-hmm. And they, they'll decide to exit the business and, and others will double down and say, no, this is really my calling. And I, I feel really, really passionate about it. And and then they, I think, will, many of them will be successful mm-hmm. in continuing to raise. You know, Seth, I, I, I asked just about every founder I interview, um, why or why not did they take venture capital? Why did they take venture capital versus bootstrapping? And you, you talked a little bit about that, you know, some shouldn't even be taking venture capital. You know, when you're looking at a company, how do you, how do you look at it and think, yeah, this company should really take venture capital. This company should bootstrap or whatever. Yeah. I mean, my going in assumption is that you shouldn't, right? So it's sort of like, you got to prove, not prove to me, but I think you should prove to yourself why you think you should take uh, venture money because it's a bad deal, right? And for most, for for many people, right? You get, I get preferred shares, which means I get my money back. I get, I whatever, I, I'm buying some percentage of your business. It doesn't matter uh, what percentage I end up buying. I mean, it matters from an economic perspective, but I still end up with all of these controls, whether yep. I own five percent or you know fifty percent of your business. Um, and so it's often not a great deal, right? You really need to be up for. Um, growing a business, growing it relatively quickly and, and finding an exit, right? I mean, we're in the business of exiting companies at some point, right. right? Our funds have, I mean, no fund really is around for 10, only 10 years, but in theory, 10 year life plus two years, uh, extension at our options. So, you know, the, the time, time is ticking, right? The clock is ticking when you take mm-hmm. money from VC. Now that said, of course, many businesses either require the, that, that amount of capital are playing in markets yeah, that are that. Mm-hmm. Uh, large are are building technology where the tech stack needs to build be built out very significantly before you can get to market. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why it makes sense to take money from a VC, mm-hmm. and and then in that case, I I suggest to founders that they're very careful about who they take money from. Right, the yes. average 
Average time from investment to exit is eight years, right? That's actually yep. longer, at least last time I checked the stat, that was longer than the average U.S. marriage, right? So just to give you a sense for the kind of, you know, an analogy for the kind of relationship. <laughs> That's an interesting statistic. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, you know, sobering thought on both ends. Uh, but you know, why are marriages so, so short and why are the, why is the, yeah, right, the venture right, cycle right. so long? But but in any event, like you want to be careful about it and, and do your reverse due diligence and be really thoughtful. And certainly I've seen companies um, decide to take money from someone that, that they've regretted. And, and in some yeah, cases, well, they, I've heard those know, stories a hundred times. Yeah, of course. I'm sure you right. Of course, you work on the people side of the business. So I'm yeah. sure you hear this all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that 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 people should go into that uh, mm-hmm. relationship with their eyes wide open. And I I often will talk to founders very, very bluntly about here's the here's how I like to work with companies, and I want to make sure you're good with that because if you're not, then we're not a good match, right? And, right? and every once in a while, you end up in a situation where where there is that mm-hmm. sort of impedance, and and so you know, I mean, I, right. one of the things that we've done a lot at Foundry that I'm really proud of is that we're not static in terms of who sees a business, who does the due diligence mm-hmm. on the business, and who takes the board seat, and then even who stays on the board. Um, and so we're very fluid in, at each of those moments. Mm-hmm. And I think that served us well. Um, we have lots of instances where someone saw it first, someone else did the majority of the due diligence and, and a third person took the board seat. And, and in, in many cases where a fourth person or one of the original two people took the board seat two years later, for whatever reason, right? We're busy on our side or the company's going through something or in a couple cases, you know, there've been some situations where where we didn't feel like it was the right personality fit. And so we've switched uh, some things around. And I, I think that's really powerful. Unfortunately, the venture model tends to be more static than that. So, um, and I think it's one of the things that I think could be improved about the venture model is that it's a bit stovepiped in terms of uh, people feeling like they need to, you know, own and control the best businesses. And, and I think some of that also goes to, or stems from people getting credit or maybe how some venture firms allocate carry based on whose deal is whose. So they want to hold on to the things that are working. And, right. um, you know, fortunately we, we don't have that partnership at Foundry and I'm incredibly grateful for, uh, for my partners for being, uh, open to that and, and feeling like, look, every deal is a, a firm deal. We make, make mm-hmm. our decisions together. And if it doesn't work, that was our fault. And if it does right. work, then, then we were successful. Right. So when, when you are, you know, there's a sort of common saying that, you know, one, only one out of 10 investments pay back a massive return. And then, you know, there's X number that, you know, you'll break even on and then there's the losers, right? Would you agree with that, that percentage or has that, have you been able to improve upon that? And if so, how? It's more skewed than you think. 66.1% of venture investments, so each round, fail to return capital. And something like 0.1% are greater than 100x. Um, and so it's, it's even more skewed than, yeah, than, that, right? uh, than, than the sort of conventional wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, now that can still work really well, right? And we actually mm-hmm. almost followed that exactly in our very first fund. Um, we blew up, you know, roughly two-thirds of the, of the capital, and, and it still was a 5x plus fund. Because mm-hmm. um, we had some really, really big winners in there, and and it's been interesting to watch. You know, our second fund was a little bit different. We had we were much more consistent um, for whatever reason. That might have been the style of investing or the mm-hmm. types of businesses that were being formed. The first one was two thousand seven. The second one was twenty ten. A um, little or still early to figure out from the other funds, but but it, there's no doubt that there's a significant power curve in venture. And I, by the way, I think people have c- kind of forgotten that, um, right? I mean, if you look across the the industry. 
there were so many write-ups in 2020, 21 in particular, mm-hmm. uh, that I think people deluded themselves into thinking like, no, 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 my batting average is going to be a lot higher. I mean, you just look yeah. at PPI across the industry. I think it peaked at like seven, just over seven, seven X. Um, but the right. industry average return is less than two X. So we know, I mean, we know from history that TVPI mm-hmm. tends to fall, right? So things get marked up. Not all of those things that get marked up will be successful, but we've just gone through this like crazy, uh, markup period. And we're, we're only just starting to see that kind of come back to reality. Now, maybe it's an incredible vintage and it does, I don't know, three X, right. Which would be a huge improvement over the kind of historic average. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm talking industry wide, right? Of course there will be mm-hmm. individual funds that do that on a regular basis. Um, but that, that means there's still more than 50%, right? The market's still going to fall more than 50% from where it's marked today to where it eventually right. ends up. And then if it co- falls back to more historical norms, and there's no particular reason to believe that it won't be at least somewhere in that range, right? I mean, there's always vintages that are better than others. Um, and so, you know, there may be some specific years in the in there that are a bit better. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a little, there's a bit of a reality check that's yet to come. Um, and I think that that'll be, that'll be challenging, right? I mean, the truth is that we haven't really had a pullback since 2008-9, right? right? And most people in venture today weren't even in, weren't in business or and if they were, right. they certainly weren't in venture <laughs> in that time period. By the way, let alone people that were in venture in 2000 and 2001, right? I'm dating myself because I'm, I'm old Well, now. yeah, yeah. You see, but <laughs> no, I, you know, none of us get any life. younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't, right? Yeah, right. So, so... If you look, you know, if you could point to, so somebody sends you their pitch deck and, you know, their spiel, here's what we're up to at, at a high level. I know there's, it's just far more complicated at a high level. What are like the top three or four things that you are looking for in a company, a product, whatever that might be for you yeah. to say, okay, let's, let's dig into this deeper. I'm looking for, um, a founder that is passionate about the product that they're selling and the print specifically the problem that they're solving. Right. So I start mm-hmm, with good, that. Right. That's what I always um, say. It's the number one thing. They got to have a problem that you need to solve. A problem you need to and a problem that they, they care deeply about. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, there are plenty of examples of, of, you know, MBA students sitting around in a, in a conference room doing a whiteboard mm-hmm. and coming up with a good company. But, but I, those, the founders that we tend to gravitate for are people that sort of have a lived experience around something yep. and, and they really yep. passionately want to see something changed. Yep. Um, and so, um, so that's the thing we look, look for first. And then obviously yep. from there it's, is it, do we think it's an interesting market that's going in interesting, in an interesting direction? Do we think it's a big market, right? Or has the potential to be a big market? It doesn't have to be today, but it, it could be uh, at some point in the mm-hmm. future, do we believe that it's it, they're playing into a trend that's a positive trend? Do we okay. think that there are a lot of customers that they can access at a reasonable uh, acquisition cost in this mm-hmm. market? Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, what do we need to believe in order for this to be a big outcome, right? We've got big funds. Uh, now we've combined our funds together. So the fund of funds mm-hmm. is, is part of the the direct investment fund. So, you know, mm-hmm. our, our latest fund was a half a billion dollars you know, we need companies that can be pretty big in order to move the needle on that. And, um, and so we always ask ourselves, well, what do we need to believe in order for this to be a big outcome? And by the way, we don't just ask ourselves that in the first round, we have to ask ourselves that every time we put capital into a business at some, some valuation, what do we need to believe in order for this to be a big outcome? 
Um, right. And that's an explicit conversation that we have as a partnership that I, I would certainly encourage if the VCs that are listening uh, that I think that's a really important question to be able to answer and entrepreneurs for that matter, right? You're, yeah. I mean, in some respects, they've got the harder bargain because they're not just putting in uh, sort of their, their own capital, either directly or in the form of, of opportunity cost uh, doing something else, but they're also putting in, you know, this immense amount of time and effort and, and, you know, believing that it's going to, going to be an outcome. Well, what do you need to believe in order for it to be a really, really big outcome? Right. So I had somebody say to me not long ago, um, venture invests in teams, not individuals. What do you think about that? I mean, I think that, yeah, right. I mean, that's sort of the cliche, right? People, I love, I love when people are like, "Well, I'd rather have a great team than a great idea," and I'm like, "No, you wouldn't. You'd no, rather have a great no, team." I, and I a totally great disagree. Idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, like you want both. Like, of course, you don't no. want a, a crappy team, um, but you definitely you hire all your relatives and friends. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you de- you definitely want a good team and a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there, and and and. You know, of course, there's plenty of very famous examples of companies kind of shifting their ideas. So in some respects, I think what they're really saying is it's easier to shift the idea than it is to shift the team. And I agree with that. Um, but absolutely, of course, we invest in in teams. Um, and so that's, you know, we do a decent amount of due diligence on the people yeah. that we work with. I mean, Foundry has uh, forever had the sort of no assholes rule, as we, we talk about explicitly. Haven't 100% gotten that right, by the way. Occasionally, we end up with some people that didn't quite right. work, but it's a small number right. of the... I don't know what it's been now, 120 businesses we've invested in. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's maybe it's more than that. You know, we've we've had a few that didn't quite, you know, didn't turn out to be the kind of people we thought that they would be. But we do spend a decent amount of time trying to figure that out. So what what did you miss in those cases, do you think? That somebody turned out to be like just an asshole or whatever. Or or in a couple cases, kind of like uh, like a crook, right? I mean, we ended up with a couple oh, people that, that tried to sort of defraud companies. Hey. Uh, you know, I I asked myself a lot. Uh, one of those was one of my one of the companies that I uh, was was primary on. Um, we ended up forcing this co-founder out of the business, um, and the company ultimately was very successful. It was sold a couple years ago, um, but uh, and the co-founder fortunately really stepped up and 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 was also kind of hoodwinked on it. Um, but I do ask myself, like, are there are there signs that we could have caught? And probably right. I mean, if I'm being being honest and blunt. And self-reflective, like, yeah, they, I probably had a couple questions as I think about this situation, maybe a couple of the others. Um, but, you know, I think sometimes that's going to happen, right? I mean, you know, people are, you only get to spend so much time with folks. And I, would, I will say, Carol, one of the things I didn't like about the last couple of years made me very uncomfortable was how little time we had to really evaluate investments. And, mm. and you know, in that case, we're relying a lot on our partner funds. So I think that model yeah. helped, helped serve us uh, when markets were moving that quickly. But I, I'm not the kind of person that likes to meet a company on a Monday and, you know, by the following Thursday have to have a term sheet or not. Right. I mean, I like to spend a little bit of time. I like to have multiple meetings. You like to catch people at different times mm-hmm. of day and in different moods and at different, you know, different days of the mm-hmm. week and on different subjects and really start to get to know them. And I think being a bit more methodical mm-hmm. is helpful. And by the way, I think that's bi-directional, right? I mean, I think that, you know, it, it wasn't also, it probably seemed super founder favorable to, you know, mm-hmm. to have them take a bunch of meetings one week and tell, tell people I need term sheets the following week. But, but that didn't give them much time to really understand what kind of value would someone add? What, what kind of person would they be to work with? And, and I'm really glad, I mean, someone was asking me like, you know, are you bummed the go-go days are over? And I, I said, no, I'm, I actually am more comfortable investing in this environment. Um, yeah. and you know, Not look, our job ultimately is mm-hmm. to get exits and you pick your, 
you pick your moments for that and, and favorable markets are great for exits. And, and fortunately, Foundry was able to, to have a number of large number of exits over the last couple of years. Um, but overall, I'm a little more comfortable in more of a normal market. So now I don't want a recession. I, that's not yeah. good for lots of parts no. of the business and lots of parts of our economy. Let's but, not even get into that conversation. Yeah. Well, fair <laughs> enough. Okay. We won't say the R word then. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I believe we're going to be in a recession, but, you know, I, that don't, I don't want that to hijack the rest of this conversation. No, I understand. Um, but think about the changes to your business and to mine as the markets right. slow down, whether it's a full-blown recession that's serious and, and severe or only a smaller one, we, we'll, we don't know yet. That's but, right. Um, managing people, you know, your business, managing investments, my business, mm-hmm. is very different in a, in a world of full employment, in a world where... Uh, things are moving too quickly and, and people are making emotional decisions rather than rational decisions. And I think that there is some benefit to kind of pulling back from that just a touch, right. And, and, um, and, and for people to be able to make kind of better decisions. And by the way, I think that's true for employees who, you know, I'm sure you counsel this to people, right. I mean, and you asked me this question very directly, like, you know, in terms of trading off dollars for, for the job, but, but, you know, taking the highest price offer maybe isn't always the right thing to do. Well, I've, I, um, I mean, I, I literally was interviewed yesterday and had that exact conversation with the person interviewing me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's very complicated and, you know, human beings, you know, you just can't say, well, I'm going to give everybody this. That's not what everybody wants. Yeah. That's just not effective to do it that way. Um, Do you have any preference, Seth, to a single or co-founder situation? I think that I have a preference for strong teams. I've had great luck with companies mm-hmm. that have had single founders. Um, okay. I've had good luck also with, with co-founders. I think if I were to start a business, I would start it with someone else. I think being a founder can be quite lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. ultimately having someone that you can bounce ideas off of, I, I think is, is ultimately yeah. helpful. I, I know I rely on my partners a lot. I mean, venture is kind of a solo business in some respects, but, um, but in many respects, I, you know, I lean on my partners to give me advice and, and to sanity check things. And I think founders are the same way. So, you know, if you look at, for example, Techstars, right, which is a model we know mm-hmm. so well, they have a huge bias towards, uh, towards teams. Um, and I think that that's based on experience of, um, seeing better and more successful outcomes, Mm -hmm. uh, with, with, uh, companies that are started by multiple people. And and when you think about teams, Seth, when people come to you, is everyone on the team already in a hundred percent or, or, or some of them, if not all of them still have their other job until they get funded? Yeah. So when we were doing seed investing, so where we invest, which is primarily Series A or even Series B, everyone's full time. Um, Of course. But but it's very common. When you were doing the earlier stage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is what you're asking. And it's very Mm -hmm. common that, uh, you know, people who uh, have not raised money yet, you know, and can't pay themselves are not in a position to quit their day jobs. And by the way, I think it's really important, especially as you think about um, investing in sort of socioeconomically diverse founders, right? I mean, if you right. only want to invest in rich people, then you have to insist that they've quit their job already. But yeah. the truth is many people can't afford to do that, right? Of course because not. They have families or other responsibilities mm-hmm. and, and that's fine, right? It should not be a prerequisite. We certainly see this at Techstars. There are tons of founders uh, that, that uh, apply for Techstars who have not uh, quit their day jobs yet, right. which is totally fine. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's, 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 uh, completely reasonable. Um, how do, how do people typically connect with foundry? I mean, that are looking for money Are they just, you know, they say, Oh, here's Seth Levine. I'll send him an email. You know, yeah. it was funny. I got an email from someone yesterday. I kind of laughed at it. I get these, you know, probably once a week or something like that. Yeah. And someone emails me and says, hi, I'd like to pitch foundry. How can I send you my business plan? Right. So they already <laughs> have my email. Right. And I'm, and I always send them a note back and say, you can just send it to me here. Right. I mean, that's like, there's <laughs> that's no, really funny. I, there's no like some it? form to fill out or whatever. I mean, I know some VCs, but some, that, some right? companies, some firms do have that. In fact, some, yeah, that's true. Some do prefer it, so, but they tend to be pretty clear on their website. Like, Hey, if you want to reach yeah. us, fill out our form. Right. Um, and we're the opposite, right? We are, we've got our emails in, in many places mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, so that's generally how people want to reach us. I mean, I do mm -hmm. sometimes have to say to people like, look, just to be clear, we see, 8,000 business opportunities a year. We're mostly yeah. investing behind our partner funds, not totally, but mostly. And so, you know, there's a lot of, hey, this is interesting, but I, you know, it's not something I can take a look Can't at do right it. now. Yeah. There's a lot of that. But occasionally I see something that's interesting and I'll pass it on to one of our partner funds uh, because it's too early for us or, or it's something I think they might mm -hmm. specifically be interested in. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that you're much more likely to get a thoughtful email back if you send a thoughtful email. Um, so I, I respond to everyone who e emails me with the caveat that I don't respond to people that send a note to Mobius Venture Capital because they've been out of business now s since 2005 and Yikes. why people can't figure that out. And I don't send uh, emails back to people that say to whom it may concern or dear investor. Um, and then lastly, I do, and I do get a, so these you sometimes. actually get stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, all the time. Oh my God. Um, I can't even and I don't it. respond to people who are clearly just emailing all of us and then they forget to, to replace, you know, Chris Moody's name with mine. And so it says, you know, Hey, Chris, and I just delete. Cause it's like, Hey, if you can't take the time to, to, I, I, you know what you are preaching to the choir, pal. And I'm really glad to hear you say that because, you know, I, for my own business, I get constantly spammed all week long, yeah. emails, LinkedIn, you know, they're making grammatical errors, punctuation errors, you know, they, you know, hi, comma. Really? <laughs> Delete. Yeah, right. Can't exactly. My name. Come on. I totally agree, Carol. Right. I mean, I think that people just should chaps my I, ass I tell, to no extent. I tell people all the time, like you're so much better sending 20 thoughtful emails than a hundred essentially spam emails. I completely agree. It's, it's, it's quality, not quantity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I mean, I'm glad to hear you confirm that because that is what I tell people all the time. I'm, you know, you and I talked not long ago about a, a founder that I'm now doing some, some work for. And, you know, I've had a rewrite emails for him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he just. Well, thank like, God you're there, right? To, to be well, able to yeah. help him, right? I, I mean, otherwise... that's, you know, right. And, and, you know, you look, founders don't have any money, right? So, you know, the reality is, is that, um, you know, if, if he didn't have somebody like me to say, you, you can't say this, this is not the right way to say this. This is too gimmicky, whatever. Just, you know, get to the point. Don't blow sunshine up anybody's skirt. You know, yeah. it is just, just be, have some integrity and some authenticity. Yeah. That's really absolutely. anybody cares about. That doesn't I'm mean they're going to invest in you, but at least they'll read your email. Yeah. And, and in my case, I will respond to everyone who sends me a real email. My, my other right. favorite, I'm sure you get these all the time are, I hope you're well, like it starts with, I hope you're well. Oh, and yeah, I mean, from yeah. people that I don't know. And yeah. my, I, the email program I use, I can see immediately when I pull up an email, I can see on the right sidebar, whether they've emailed me before and when, 
And so I can tell if it's someone, oh, right. Cause yes. I have, I mean, I have 20,000 contacts in my contacts. Like I, yeah, I, sure. I, of course I don't remember everyone that mm-hmm. I've ever connected with or whatever. Right. Well, um, same and so, but it'll, it'll show it up. It'll show up and I'll, I can see by the way, I can also see if it's the same person who's emailed me three times about the same business. Um, and you know, I can send that back and say, Hey, I've already, we've already had a back and forth on this. That happens pro- also probably once a week. Um, but I can also see like, okay, here's this person who's pretending like we're best buds and, uh, I can see that I, we've never had a connection of any kind. Yeah. 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 Um, before we finish up, I want to talk a little bit about your book, Seth. Yeah. Thank you. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the impetus behind this, you know, your co-author Elizabeth McBride, um, how you met her and where this idea came up and what has gotten you so passionate about this? Yeah. It's really become a calling. Carol, as you know, as we've talked about it a number of times, um, I met Elizabeth because we both shared an interest in uh, Palestine, actually. Um, she was doing some reporting over there. I mean, this is probably six, six, seven years ago now. And um, someone mentioned to her, hey, have you connected with Seth Levine? He's, you know, this American investor. There are not a lot of them kind of running around, like actually doing things on the ground in Palestine. And um hmm. Sorry, the dogs got up behind me. Uh, And so she reached out and just said, hey, would you be open to having a conversation? So Mm -hmm. uh, we talked on the phone or Zoom. It was was pre-Zoom. So we talked on the phone or whatever Skype, I guess it was back then. (laughs) And um, really hit it off. And um, and then maybe a couple months later, she was coming through Boulder and she asked if we could sit down. We had another conversation. And we just started kind of talking regularly and, and really sharing stories of entrepreneurs doing interesting things around the world, right? But primarily in the Middle East, which was just, you know, where we, the area that we connected from. And um, one time she was coming through Boulder and, and I just, I, but to your question about teams, I'd sort of had it in my head that I wanted to write a book. My partner, Brad's written a number of them. Uh, He and Jason uh, wrote a book together that was very successful venture deals that many people have read, highly recommend. Um, And I sort of had it in my head. I wanted to write a book and I, I just sort of pitched it to Elizabeth and, and, you know, she'd been a journalist for a long time, but she also had not written a book. And I just said, Hey, what do you think? And I was thinking about like, we should tell the stories of founders that are a little out of the limelight. We were going to call it faces of entrepreneurship. It was almost going to be a coffee table style, like pictures and stories and kind of a lighthearted book. And she was like, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. So we started doing research on it. And it turned out that venture capital was in this like real, uh, sorry, not venture, entrepreneurship was in this real state of decline. And we had no idea. Um, and so we, and, and, and in part, um, we were not, we, it was declining because we were not doing a good job of supporting the next generation right. of entrepreneurs, of women and people of color, yeah. women start businesses. Yeah. More than half of all new businesses are started by women. Um, mm-hmm. And 64% of women started businesses are started by black women. Right, so when people of color are wow. starting businesses at an incredible rate. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of reasons for that that mm-hmm. you can, we could get into, but probably, mm-hmm. probably for a longer discussion. Um, and so we thought, well, wow, this is really interesting. We've, we've come come across something that was not what we expected. So we we took that back to a bunch of our friends and just said, hey, well, this is what we're coming up with. What do you think? And almost to a person, they said, oh, well, we think your data are wrong. Like that doesn't that's not right. Like venture is thriving. And we're like, yeah, well, venture is thriving, but venture is like- <laughs> Not for women and people of, of color. <laughs> yeah, right. And by the way, ask ask black women whether venture is thriving for them. And the answer yeah, right, is exactly. a resounding hell no. Yeah. By the way, still is, even though we're, it's still not thriving for them, even though we're talking about it more. Um, and so 
and that was when we really said, ah, okay, now we're really onto something. So not only do we find something interesting, but no one even believes it. And so we decided to write about that. It became a, bit, a bunch more serious and, and it became a, again, as we were saying, it became a real passion project. So we, we spent about a year doing interviews for it. And then we started writing it up, um, really in the sort of late spring of, of uh, 2020. And of course, COVID was just hitting. Which was a good time to be doing that. <laughs> well, it turned out to be a great time to, you know, if I wanted to take two days a, re- a week and write, it was nice to not be traveling. And, exactly, and so, right. But, but it also was very urgent, right? Because 40% yeah. of, of um, black and brown owned businesses went out of business in the first three yeah. months of COVID. God, so horrible. it was, you know, the, the trends we were talking about, especially early on in COVID, looked like they really were going to be massively exacerbated. Yep. Um, now, COVID took a weird trajectory in terms of, uh, you know, consumer spending and things like that. And businesses were able to reconstitute themselves. And 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 uh, it turned out to be a little bit of a, a sort of resurgence of entrepreneurship. Also, because we threw a lot of money into the economy as well. And I think that helped. Um, but but we wrote it very, very quickly because we felt this urgency about getting the story out. And, and it's been incredibly well received. Like, we're I'm thro- so proud of the work that we've done and we've influenced a bunch of policies and, and, uh, you know, sort of things at the government level and we've sold a bunch of books, which is not, you know, it's not a wonky book. It's actually more of a, a book of stories with a, with sort of a, almost like a Malcolm Gladwell, if I can mm-hmm, take mm-hmm. that leap style, like, you know, presentation of studies and, and, you know, interesting uh, facts and, and background and figures. But, uh, but it, it's been, it's still a pretty, pretty specific subject and it's been great to see mm-hmm. how well received it's been. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's been a, it's been an incredible journey, Carol. I've really loved it. Awesome. So, and you are writing a follow-up book. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, we are, we are just, we just started doing uh, interviews on this. It'll be, be a little bit of a project, but, uh, perhaps once it's published, I can come back and talk about it. Um, so, uh, yeah. I'm writing with Elizabeth. We, we write well together. Um, and, uh, we're going to explore the, uh, sort of evolving, changing nature of capitalism. Um, you know, Mm. from actually I think capitalism has sort of evolved all throughout history, but you know, in the last 50 years, we've been living under a very specific style of capitalism, which is shareholder capitalism that was, that was personified by Milton Friedman and, and shareholder premacy. Um, and that's been changing over the last handful of years, right? The CEO roundtable comes out in 2018 and says, actually, you know, we are the leaders of these, you know, several hundred big businesses. And we, we think that um, we should be thinking about more than just our shareholders as we think about creating value. Um, mm-hmm. You have uh, various companies that are, uh, you know, making very public announcements about how they're supporting community or how they're supporting their workforce. Uh, you've got the rise of the B Corp movement and and just capital and and all sorts mm-hmm. of other ways of kind of measuring whether companies are living up to their values. And then you have a whole generation of people entering the workforce that are saying, hey, no, this is stuff I care about. I want to know yeah. what the company I work for believes in. And um, and I think that that's really interesting. And by the way, this this exists both on the left and the right side of the political spectrum. There's certainly companies that are values, or they would say they're values driven, right. um, that are that have what I guess we'd call in the in sort of the the political landscape a conservative view. Um, and so I, that's what we're exploring, which I think is really really interesting. Um, well, so we've just that started that. Out. So it's, it'll yeah. be, it'll be a fun project. I can't, I really can't wait, Carol, to get to the writing part. Like the, yeah. I'm enjoying the interviews. We're, we're talking to probably three or four people a week and in, in, in these interviews, uh, which has been really fun, but I can't wait to get to actually starting to write the book, which will unfortunately sure. is probably another six months away. Cause we just have a lot mm. more prep work to do. Yeah, but, that's okay. 
Yeah. I mean, you know so, this from your own writing, writing experience, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's hard. And especially if you're doing a lot of primary research. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, on the personal side, um, I know that you're an avid cyclist and skier, not something not at all uncommon for Coloradans. <laughs> I'm a, yeah. I'm a walking cliche of Boulder. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, you know, I always say it's, you know, great living in America's playground, right? <laughs> There's a lot to do here outside. Absolutely. Um, what else do you do with your time when you're not working? Yeah. Well, so my wife and I have three kids, so there's right. that. They're getting older now. My, my daughters are now in college, uh, right. just started college. Um, so there's plenty of that. Um, I, we love to travel. And so we do quite a bit of that. Uh, and I, I missed that during COVID. We're happy to get back to that, which has mm-hmm. been really, really nice. Um, and I'm, um, you know, I also have just all sorts of side projects, right? So I'm advising funds and companies right. around the world. I'm working on a, a program, getting up a program, uh, started in Palestine. I've mm. got a, a company that I'm helping someone work with, uh, to potentially build a funding platform for new builders. It's based on our work on the book, uh, awesome. which I'm also excited about. And, and so there's quite a bit of, of stuff on the side that's sort of quasi work related. I sometimes joke that I have you know, four or five jobs now when you count, you know, my main job at Foundry, but also writing the book and some of these Mm -hmm. other things that I'm involved with. Um, I'm really passionate about trying to spread entrepreneurship into other communities, uh, support for entrepreneurship, I should say, into other communities, right? They're already uh, incredible entrepreneurs, but we don't do a good job of supporting them. So there's a lot of that. And then, you know, occasionally you got to, got to sleep and, and, and as I mentioned, you know, spend time with my, my family. So that's been, and COVID has been, a real reminder for why those things are important. We, I, I like, I'm sure you did as well. We spent a lot of time as a family. My wife and I spent a lot of time together walking and, and, uh, you know, was having lived a life for 25 years of, of a lot of travel and all of a sudden not going anywhere was, was really, really different. Yeah, I can imagine. So, well, Seth Levine, Managing Director of Foundry Group, I- I'm so glad to have you uh, on the show. Thank you for all your wisdom and your generosity, and it's uh, great talking to you as always. Thank you for having me, Carol, and I've, I just uh, thank you for the thoughtful questions, and I've, I've so enjoyed our now you know 20-year uh, friendship, yeah. so thank you. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.